Alright, hello everyone. Welcome to the Chainlink God podcast, where we break down the information asymmetry on all things blockchains, oracles, and smart contracts. So, today we're going to be discussing what is crypto economic security, specifically in the context of Bitcoin proof of work and Ethereum proof of stake, kind of uh, setting the scene for the next podcast recording where we'll be covering how crypto economic security works in the Chainlink Oracle network specifically. So that may already be live. If not, that's going to be live very soon. So uh, today I am, again, joined by the one and only Crypto Oracle. How are you doing today? Good. Glad to be uh, covering this topic that I know many people are quite interested in. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of nuances on, on this one. It's it's more than just decentralization. So I think we should we should start off with just defining what is crypto economic security. So let's set the definition first, because uh, I think definitions are often the most important thing before starting any type of uh, discussion on a topic. I feel like oftentimes people argue over each other when they don't even start from the same point of a definition. So crypto economic security is essentially methods in which distributed cryptographic systems use financial incentives to form honest and performant consensus about updating the state of the network. So what does that mean in simple terms? How do we financially incentivize the blockchain or really any decentralized protocol based on cryptography to work properly? How do we get all these independent entities to come together? In a blockchain, Crypto economic security is how do we use cryptocurrency to financially incentivize a group of independent entities, which in this case are the miners or the validators, to work together to maintain a valid and consistently up-to-date ledger in the wake of possibly malicious actors. And that last part is really important because not only do we want financial incentives to pay people for performing work, so we're paying the miners to actually uh, participate in the consensus mechanism, but we also need financial incentives that are high enough to avoid various types of attacks. And the most obvious one is 51% attack. How do we incentivize the network to prevent one entity or you know, maybe a cartel from controlling over half of the network? Because when they control, when there's a 51% attack and they control half of the network, they, they can perform various types of attacks like reorgs, which they can change the history of the ledger. You can go back in time and change it. Uh, invalid state changes, processing invalid transactions, censorship, preventing valid from transactions from actually happening, pretty much withholding transactions. And that can, you know, they can censure them over a long period of time or even temporarily, which has effects as well. And the other financial incentive is you need to just disincentivize users from spamming transactions with little to no value, especially when the blockchain has limited processing capacity. Only so many transactions can fit into a block. And so if users are spamming these at little to no cost, that prevents other valid transactions from happening. And this is kind of one of the one of the key ones I think a lot of people recognize is one of the like attack vectors that blockchains solve. It's kind of under the category of reorgs, but it's the, the double spend problem where you use the same currency twice to pay two different people. They pay someone, revoke it, and then pay another person, which historically has been a large issue for centralized services like PayPal and uh, these other banking institutions where they can uh, cancel transactions and then make another payment in the process. So 
with, with the financial incentives, those are like one of the core issues like that blockchains and crypto economics that secure those blockchains try to secure. So just kind of wanted to highlight that one because it's the double spend problem was like that was unsolvable before these crypto economic ne uh, networks came along. Yeah, I believe that was the, the root problem that Bitcoin kind of set out to solve and was kind of the foundational uh, breakthrough that Bitcoin, you know, solved essentially. So let's look at uh, some categories of crypto economic incentives. And these are, you know, kind of common in most blockchains. And we're, we're going to split these into two categories, explicit and implicit. Explicit is, is how, you know, how we're defining it as direct incentives, which is basically for, for the service that's being provided. So it's like a reward and penalty directly from the service that these miners or validators or whatever entities are providing. So the, fir the first one, which is obvious, is that users have to pay transaction fees to get their transactions processed on the network. And this avoids spam attacks. If they don't have to pay anything, they could just spam the network and you can actually create a denial of service attack on the network. Now for, for high-speed blockchains, you know, this might not be as, you know, you, if, there's, if there's more processing capacity, it's maybe not as big of an issue, but when there's limited processing capacity, it is. The second one is that the, the miners and the validators get paid exclusively in an asset that's tied directly to the network. So this means that their, their revenue is tied to the success of the network. So they have a financial incentive to get paid for services by behaving honestly in the network. If they behave dishonestly, you know, that revenue stream be, may become less. And, and the third one is Miners and miners or validators have to put financial resources at stake, which essentially they have to lock up assets in a form of escrow that can be taken away as a penalty, which is often called slashing for malicious, unreliable, or any type of unwanted behavior. So they actually, it forces them to put direct skin in the game where their own capital is on the line and can actually be taken from them if they perform bad behavior. And importantly, these slashing conditions are predefined ahead of time by the network and cannot just be arbitrarily changed. So, so the, the miners or the validators, they, they know that they can't just skirt their obligations or manipulate the process. They, they know that the penalty is going to be enforced and that really no entity can tamper with it because it's the only way it could happen is that the whole network decides that the rules need to be changed. So, so that, that creates like a very clear enforcement mechanism for bad behavior. So the other one is implicit incentives and, and CLG, you can touch on this. Right, yeah. So with these, with these explicit incentives, they're essentially mechanisms that are built into the protocol itself, defined as uh, what actually makes up the network itself. While these, uh, these next implicit incentives are more indirect incentives that are derived from the network and derived from the services, but aren't necessarily defined by the network itself, but they do play an incredibly crucial role. So the first one, and it kind of the most prominent is that oftentimes the participants have to uh, take on debt in order to purchase some type of resource, some type of equipment in order to actually provide uh, the service within the network. And when they take on debt, that debt has to be paid back and they're able to pay back that debt by earning revenue in the network. So they don't wanna, they don't wanna jeopardize that uh, revenue, which is denominated in this native token of the network. So in cases like uh, blockchains like Bitcoin, 
if you want to participate in the production of blocks in this network, you have to have specialized mining uh, hardware called ASICs, which are application-specific integrated circuits. And these ASICs, which are just computers with some chips and fans on it, the only thing that those computers can do is mine Bitcoin, meaning the value of those ASICs is defined as the revenue that ASIC generates over time. So you want to maintain the value of that equipment and not devalue it through malicious activity. So with the ASICs, that those ASICs are specific to a specific network. So there's like Bitcoin specific ASICs, correct? Right. Yeah. So like each network has a different like hashing algorithm. A Bitcoin ASIC is not going to be the same thing as like an Ethereum ASIC or a Litecoin ASIC. So you can only use one ASIC for one network specifically. And that's that's kind of like where a lot of the security of these networks is derived from. You can only uh, use that for Bitcoin. And if you're taking, you know, if you're taking debt on to buy that, you need to pay it back directly from that network. Exactly. The only way to pay back the debt on your ASIC is to earn the tokens that that ASIC gives you. You can't just switch to another network, except in the case of other networks, which they actually allow you to use more generalized infrastructure like graphics cards or just kind of generalized cloud servers. And so with those networks, you still have to take on debt because you need to have hardware but there's actually you actually get less crypto economic security there because you know if it, you could go around and go sell that hardware to to uh, to other entities who can use it for different purposes so like with graphics cards you can go sell that to gamers or you can sell that to artificial intelligence uh, computation companies like there's this hardware is not application specific so you still have security through debt effectively but asics they kind of get a bad rap sometimes because only certain manufacturers create them but they actually generate a lot of security because you can't just uh, torch the network without burning the the value of those ASICs. Yeah, I think with the GPU, uh, you could just resell those quite easily. So the resale value is, you know, you can use them in all types of other computing environments, whereas, you know, the ASICs are very specific. Yes, like if if you're mining with GPUs, and you attack the network, you can go turn around and sell it and get most of your money back on those graphics cards. But if you go attack the network and it has ASICs and you go try to sell your ASICs, well, nobody's going to want to buy ASICs for a network you just destroyed. So like it's it's a huge monetary attachment to it. And those those ASICs are pretty expensive from, from my understanding. And they're also quite limited. Like I think the premium on them is much higher just because there's only so many made per year, like especially for a network like Bitcoin. Yeah, there's actually been like a chip shortage in general. So like all the ASICs that are going to be created in like the next year or two have already been purchased. So like they're already a, uh, like a in-demand commodity. And we're already kind of seeing like more manufacturers spin up. So it's more commoditized. But ASICs like they're, you know, you're not, you're not going to get like a $100 ASIC. They're going to be thousands of dollars at least. And because of the economies of scale, you're going to want to order dozens of them or hundreds of them to actually make your mining operation worthwhile. So like this, this specialized hardware is like you have to make a deep investment into hardware that only works for the network that you're actually securing. So that hardware is like a, that's a key component. And it's not necessarily built into the protocol because the protocol doesn't say what you have to mine with, but realistically only the people with these special hardware actually make money. So the, 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 the second dynamic and the other important uh, other side of the coin really uh, is that participants in a crypto crypto economically secure network, they have ongoing financial exposure to the native token that they're earning. So essentially 
all of the revenue that they generate is from the explicit incentive of this native token, but the actual financial value of that token is defined by the market. And so this is both the future revenue that these participants generate, and it's the current holdings that they've earned in the past or they purchased. So that could be held passively, just what they've earned. That could be locked up in DeFi as collateral to go generate a loan to maybe go purchase some more mining equipment to expand your operation. And it's also the, the not just the revenue you generate today, but it's the future revenue as well that you need to take into account. Because if you corrupt the network, you corrupt not only the value of the tokens today, but also your future revenue because it's also denominated in this uh, this native token. And that really uh, kind of plays into this, you know, if you're buying ASICs two years in advance, that it becomes even more uh, important. You have even more exposure to the specific token. Yeah, you don't you don't want to devalue the token because if you devalue the token, you're devaluing those ASICs at the same time. Like the 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 function, like the price of an ASIC is a function of the price of the token it generates itself. So they're very intertwined with each other. So essentially, there, there's a strong incentive to not devalue the token because you're going to devalue both your revenue, both the tokens you hold, and the hardware you have, which actually generates those tokens. So essentially, this dynamic exists because the market value of a token is derived from the health of the network, effectively. When you think about it from like a, a user's perspective and they want to go own Bitcoin, they're only going to want to own Bitcoin if the Bitcoin network is actually working. If people see that the Bitcoin network keeps getting attacked all the time and that it's not reliable, people, one, aren't going to want to buy Bitcoin, and two, they're going to sell the Bitcoin that they have, which pushes down the price. So a reliable network is ultimately what you would want in addition to adoption to actually maintain or drive up the value of the of a native token. Yeah, particularly over the long term. I think people will be like, well, in the short term, it's you know speculation. But I think over the long term, if you're, you know, the health of the network is it, as long as that network, you know, is continually being adopted, is going to affect the token's price. Yeah, the, the the people sometimes like the more developers, they don't want to talk about price because it can get very like speculative moon boy type energy, but like the, the value, USD value of these tokens matter for network security. You can't have a valueless token securing your network because the cost of attack is nothing and the equipment is worth nothing because why would you join a network, spend millions of dollars on hardware and then get nothing out of it? That it just fundamentally doesn't make any sense. So in this aspect of uh, this token needs to be worth something in order for the network to be secure, some networks employ a design where you're required to have some type of a uh, long-term forced exposure to an asset. So that can be uh, some, some proof of stake networks. They don't have like an explicit staking design where they slash you, like was what a CO described, but they can have a more implicit where you have to lock up your tokens, meaning you're forced to be financially uh, exposed to this token. So we kind of see some networks like Cardano do that, where it's not necessarily time locked, but if you want to participate in the network, you have to go lock up your tokens meaning you're extremely uh, tied to the value of that token. So uh, effectively, when each individual is driven by these incentives, they have hardware they want to keep the value of, they have the tokens they want to keep the value of, and they want to maintain their future revenue, each individual entity has a strong incentive, to be honest. So if you want to uh, corrupt the network, you can't do it alone. You need to get a majority of the network in that dramatically increases the complexity of actually trying to uh, pull this off because a lot of times network participants are completely anonymous anyways. 
So you don't necessarily know how to contact them. So there's a lot of social friction uh, between actually trying to generate collusion between these independent entities. Because ultimately, the whole purpose is that in the long term, it's more profitable to be honest, which is kind of why these networks uh, like Bitcoin and Ethereum, they have an honest majority assumption. The network works if the, honest, uh, the, the majority of people participating are honest. But they're only honest because they're they're generating revenue and they have these crypto economic incentives. So this this last uh, implicit little more on the financial aspect of it, the more economic incentives is that the participants they could be anonymous, but a lot of them are public businesses. Maybe they're ASIC manufacturers, or maybe they're staking pools, or maybe they're just uh, mining pools where they have a reputation. They're a legal entity, and if they're malicious they can not only become under regulatory fire through fines, but their entire business model is effectively on the line. They're staking their business model effectively. So if they are corrupted and they act maliciously, then they effectively burn their reputation, which means they burn their revenue at the same time. Yeah, this is even more, you know, like you alluded to, even if even though mining and proof of work networks is, is anonymous, you know, they, they could have established businesses that depend on this revenue. But also in, in, in networks, say like Cosmos or some of these other ones, you have validators that are that are known entities. And so, you know, they can be identified if they're being malicious to the network or if a large majority of them. Uh, you also can see this in, or, you know, in, in Oracle networks as well, which we'll you know, get to in the, other, in the other episode. And I think I define this as a crypto economic incentive because the revenue for these business models is in crypto. And so to take on these legal battles and to pay these fines, it's going to come right out of your revenue stream, which is crypto. So you have, I would argue, a crypto economic incentive. Now, people would say this isn't really an explicit incentive directly in the network, but I think it's still an implicit crypto economic incentive. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. It's, it's very much implicit. You're not required to be a public legal entity, but when you look at the scape of crypto networks, there are a lot of public entities and there are a lot of companies have who have been created and who have millions of dollars uh, in year in uh, revenue, you know, that's a lot at stake as a legal entity who can be held accountable effectively. So all of these incentives, these explicit incentives that are built into the network and these implicit incentives, which are strongly attached and are naturally arising that secure these networks, these are kind of just what secure crypto economically secure networks in general. But if we hone in on specifically the most well-known crypto economically secure network, Bitcoin and proof of work, I think there's, there's kind of like a lot of nuances into how, how is Bitcoin actually crypto economically secured with these factors? Yeah. So let's, this is kind of generally for proof of work, but, but obviously Bitcoin is the main proof of work. I mean, Ethereum proof of work right now, but we know it's moving to proof of stake in the future. So let's look at the different ways that Bitcoin provides crypto economic security. Uh, I kind of split these into a different, a couple different categories. Uh, the first is this going to be rewards. You have to give financial rewards for honest participation in the network for miners. And the first and most obvious one is the uh, on-chain block reward, which is the basic financial incentives for miners to, uh, you know, perform honest consensus. The block reward is really just a subsidy that consists of a large amount of newly minted Bitcoin. So this is actually how the new supply comes into existence. And it's awarded to the miner who is the first to solve a block. 
And the block is really just a batch of transactions that get verified and updated into the ledger. And this creates a large payoff for providing you know, computing power, which is called hashing power to the network. So by, and by making this reward high enough and adjusting the difficulty rating, which is based on the hash power, it makes it so it's unlikely for the same person to keep winning. And so they adjust this depending on how many participants are in the network. They, they can incentivize a large group of people to participate in the network, thus keeping it decentralized. So when the, the reward has to be high enough to get enough participants. If the reward's not high enough, not a lot of people will participate and you actually have a less decentralized network. Also, this, this block reward is a fixed value of Bitcoin. I believe right now it's 6.25 Bitcoins. And so you, actually by, by being honest and, 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 and promoting more adoption of the network, people want to use the network, you can actually increase the amount of payout that each node gets per block. So there's a clear incentive there that miners can become more profitable if that block reward continues to go up. And kind of a kind of a key point is like you like you touched on the difficulty rating. As more entities join this network and as more hash power is directed towards the Bitcoin network, the difficulty of actually solving the proof of work puzzle of creating a new block keeps getting harder. So in the beginning of the Bitcoin network, it was really easy to solve this puzzle every 10 minutes when a new block is created. But as the the network has very much decentralized across the world, uh, kind of concentrated in a while for China, but since they're kind of attacking Bitcoin mining now. It's kind of distributing more. So if effectively with the difficulty rating, it, it, it continues to decentralize the network and split these uh, crypto economic incentives, not just to like a small group of people, but to anybody who's willing to participate in the Bitcoin network because it's entirely permissionless. With the Bitcoin network, there's no limit on the number of nodes who can join the network. It's effectively unbound. Anyone can participate. The more that participate, the harder the puzzle becomes. And so that that way the the block reward effectively becomes like a a public a permissionless block reward if you want to contribute capital energy anybody can go get it so I, I think that's kind of a like a key point is like these crypto economic incentives are available for everyone it's kind of like entirely permissionless but the, the, this block reward's not going to go on for forever and I think this is something you you can touch on yeah so. So the block reward, like I said, is the main financial incentive right now. Same for, you know, well, actually not as much on Ethereum, but the other part of that is transaction fees. And the, 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 the miner that is the successful block producer also gets whatever transaction fees are tacked on to those transactions within that block. And so assuming, you know, the Bitcoin protocol doesn't have an inflationary supply in the future, which I don't think is likely, but you never know. The long-term uh, strategy to reward miners is transaction fees, because eventually this Bitcoin miner, you know, block reward is going to run out, uh, either and or or the the block reward is going to is not going to be worth as much money, you know, because it gets halved every four years. So eventually, unless the price skyrockets a bunch, you know, you you're going to need supplementary transaction fees and. And this is actually going to be uh, something that the Bitcoin community and really all proof of work systems are going to have to consider moving forward is how do you keep this security budget large enough to continually have a large decentralized network securing it uh, you know, as, this mon as this block reward you know, dissipates. So the, the transaction fees generally have a base cost, but they rise in cost depending on how fast you want your transaction to go through. So if you want it in the next block, you're probably gonna 
put in a higher transaction fee. If you want it in two blocks, it'll go down a little. If you don't, if you don't care, you know, you, you don't need to uh, probably have, you don't even think you need a certain extra transaction fee or like a tip per se. You just need a kind of a base layer fee that's kind of set by the market. The reason is that there's limited block space. So each block can only have so many transactions and you could potentially have unlimited demand, especially in high volatility. Like when the market's very volatile, people want to get their transaction through very quickly. And so this, this usually is why you see rising gas prices during these times. And kind of on the, the limited block space, but what we kind of saw in 2017, uh, there was a large debate about what should the block space be? How much, how, how much supply should there be on the blockchain for transactions? And th there was kind of a disagreement where the, the two sides was kind of like, we should have it, we should keep it low because the lower you keep the transaction space, the more decentralized the network is because the lower the hardware requirements. If the network can only process three and a half transactions per second, then anybody can run a Bitcoin node and it, the network becomes very decentralized. But if you have to be like a server farm because the hardware requirements are so high because it can do like a hundred transactions per second, then that can kind of potentially centralize the network. So we've kind of seen some people step into the space who don't know blockchain very well saying, well, let's just raise the block space, create more, more space for everybody to make their transactions. But that kind of centralizes the network. And so that's kind of why the block space is limited and why transaction fees exist and why they're at the level they're at. And it's entirely set by the market because it's supply and demand. So that's kind of why we can't just skyrocket the block space and let everybody make transactions for pennies. Yeah, you could argue that if you consider the long-term crypto economic security budget of Bitcoin, you need it going to be you need it to be kind of limited so people pay more potentially this is just one argument you, you need people to pay a lot per you know per, per block uh, in order to make it you know worth the miners time if it's if you know it's not worth as much then then they might not contribute hashing power to the network and it becomes more centralized over time that's going to be very interesting to watch play out over the next you know i i don't know when how you know how relative it'll be, you know, because it depends on the price of Bitcoin and, and, and adoption and certain other things. But it's that's a uh, a question I'm really interested to see how it plays out. Yeah, kind of the narrative we see is like Bitcoin will just be a settlement layer. Everything will be done on Lightning, and then Lightning can be very cheap, and the base layer can be expensive. We'll see if that's actually what ends up happening. Lightning hasn't exactly moved the needle too much, but that's kind of the narrative: is that the fees have to be expensive. Otherwise, the network's not going to be secure or they break the 21 million hard cap and make it inflationary. But I, I agree. I don't, I don't see that happening anytime soon. That would call I think it's going to depend on the Bitcoin price. The Bitcoin price has to go up for those fees to be worth enough. Uh, without the, if Bitcoin price isn't very high, there's, there's no way the, the budget is going to be large enough. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll see. Just one last point is that People like say, well, the block reward is going to run out in 2140. You know, that's like over 100 years from now. But I think people don't necessarily understand what an exponential decay chart looks like. It halves every four years. So in like 20 years, it's going to drop by like 90% or so. And it's going to keep doing that every 20 years after. So like this, the Bitcoin community is going to need to know what to do within the next couple of decades, not in the next 100 years. Like this is the, unless the price continues exponentially, but you know, is it going to go to infinity? You know, that doesn't necessarily make any make any sense. And that's really. why people have proposed inflationary rewards is that you can 
if you have a modest inflation that can that basically has an unlimited block well it has a block reward that continually runs and so that can help fund the network especially if the price is high if you just had like a one percent but again that opens a can of worms and that's kind of the whole fixed supply that was the, that was the reason that a lot of bitcoiners you know got into bitcoin is this kind of fixed supply asset so that's going to be very uh, contentious but at the end of the day when when you have to do certain things, you know, tough decisions get made a lot easier. But the, with, with the transaction fees, you know, the, the miners have a clear incentive to, if they, especially if they have these specific ASICs, they have a clear incentive to perform honestly on the network. So, those, so the network gets used more and the transaction fees go up, which then creates more profit for the miners. So we, we talked about the, the rewards for, for Bitcoin. Let's now talk about the energy, the resource input. So this is the cost that miners have to take on in order to get these rewards. And we kind of already discussed some of these, but the, the first one is energy input. Miners have to provide physical energy, hashing power to the network in order to mine a block. So in, in proof of work, they, they essentially have to use brute force, which is basically guessing random numbers until a valid hash is found. Because of this, mining is not free. Miner has to expend energy. So the miner has to either has to earn this money back or they're going to eat that loss. This is, this is probably one of the largest deterrents to malicious activity because no miner is going to contribute resources to the network and, and get nothing in return. You'd essentially be burning money. And then the narrative or like the reason why we, we kind of see narrative over time, like, oh, Bitcoin uses as much energy as countries, but that's not a bug. That's actually a feature. If you want to attack the Bitcoin network, you have to get at least 51% of the energy that the Bitcoin network consumes, plus all the hardware as well. So that energy usage is directly what keeps the Bitcoin network secure. So yes, they're doing random math functions and that may not necessarily be seen, you know, they're just guessing random numbers. The guessing random numbers is what actually secures the network from like a thermodynamics uh, perspective. Really what makes a network tamper proof is that you, you have to, yeah, you have to put a lot of uh, capital into the network in order to successfully attack it. And this is why, you know, this really creates this like truly tamper proof, you know, form of money that's above any government or you know entity. You could attack the network, but it's really expensive. And they have, as we'll get into a little bit later, there's also other complexities that you have to think about that, you know, they could just kind of diverge your attack. Yeah, I think it's both like, it's both like the tamper resistant, like you can't manipulate what happens in the future with new blocks, but it's also like, also the immutability. If you want to go back like a year and go change a transaction, you need to redo all that work that happened in the last year and redo all that energy, which is why Bitcoin is essentially for all intents and purposes immutable because unless you break physics, or have like infinite money willing to burn into nothing, then you can't change what the history of the Bitcoin chain was. Right. So, so not only are you providing physical energy to the network, but as CLG pointed out before, you have to buy this physical equipment. You have to really take on debt. And you know, this equipment is only, you can only pay back this debt by actually providing honest work to the network. So, so we talked about rewards. We talked about the resources you have to provide to get those rewards. And now let's finish with the complexity. So this is the difficulty of pulling off an attack. And I would say this magnifies the potential loss of resources that you put into the network 
analysis, the, you know, it increases the chances of you wasting the energy that you, you know, gave forth. So the complexity, I, I would break this down as kind of two part. These combine to create complexity. You have a fork, potential of a fork, and you have the decentralization of the network. So if you're a malicious miner and you mine a block that is, you know, is invalid, this could cause the network to fork, which basically means that you have two blockchains that both claim to be valid. So if the rest of the miners are honest, then your malicious fork will be deemed the, the minority chain and basically deemed illegitimate. So this is actually called the, you know, commonly referred to as the longest chain rule. And because of this, the, you base, your, your chain is invalid. So you've wasted all these resources that you just deployed to try to you know, bring through these malicious transactions. And then you, you don't get this block reward for the block that you produce because, it's, because the other chain is, becomes the valid chain. And so you've essentially wasted resources and the, and the, and the honest majority just forked and, and became the new you know, permanent chain. The, the other one, this, you know, people refer to this as the nuclear option. If there was like a, you know, a long range attack on the network that they couldn't go back and, and fork and change, you could change the, the, the hashing algorithm. And, and this would make all the existing ASICs obsolete. And, and so, you know, you, maybe you could explain this one a little bit better, Selji, but I, I've heard of this, but I, I'm not an expert on this particular one. Yeah, this is one we've never actually ever seen and hopefully we don't see it, but it's like, if somehow some entity creates some new special, highly efficient ASIC, but they keep it to themselves and they get a ton of hashing power or they go out and they like some country nationalizes mining and they scoop up a bunch of ASICs. Basically, if somebody centralizes the ASIC supply and they can control the production of blocks, the community has the option to change what algorithm the network uses. And when you do that, because an ASIC only does one algorithm, like a, a Bitcoin ASICs can only do SHA-256, if you change the algorithm to script or to ETHash or just something different, everyone's ASICs is worthless, which it, it's kind of called the nuclear option because it kills the malicious actors in the sense of like their hardware, but also all the, uh, the innocent, all the, all the regular honest miners as well. It just basically nukes the network and you have to somehow bootstrap a new secure network. So it's probably not entirely realistic, but if, if there's some type of nation state attack and they had to switch to something, that is an option and you can basically burn all the ASICs. And could you not, I mean, this would require a community consensus, but could you not roll back the chain to a specific point? Uh, like if they started attacking the network at this particular time, you could roll back to that time. And so you would actually avoid a lot of the work that was done, you know, by those malicious actors. Yeah, that, that would that would effectively go against Nakamoto longest chain consensus, but at the end of the day, it's all social consensus. Like if the if the community agrees, you know, this block, you know, from a couple of days ago is the new tip of the chain and everybody agrees, then social consensus makes it so. So like realistically, the network by default is secured by this longest chain rule, but if the community agrees to uh, kind of avoid a malicious chain, even if that chain is the longest chain, if social consensus deems it so, then it's it's absolutely possible. Right, I think that this is why it's called the nuclear option. It's like, if it was just so obvious that someone created such a large attack on the network, I, I mean, I think it'd be pretty obvious for people to, you know, deploy some type of situation like that or else, 
everyone's stuck kind of so it, it only makes sense yeah you can think of it it's kind of a an analogy is if you have a city and half the people in that city are um, a militia trying to create like a, a a virus to kill everyone in the world and the only option you had was to nuke the entire city and kill all the malicious people but also the honest people at the same time you know it's, it's not an option you want to do and you want to avoid it if all possible but it, the option's always on the table effectively so I doubt we'll ever actually see this being used, but if if the community needs to, that's always an option on the table. Right, and this kind of goes to the point that like miners don't directly control the network because this the community consensus or the market, it's the one that provides value to the block reward. And so, you know, the community could, could opt to fork it. And the community kind of controls the protocol at the end of the day, they could choose to fork it. Or if the market doesn't bring value to this block reward, well, then the mining's not really worth anything in general. So they, they're kind of beholden to the both the community and the market, which are kind of play off each other. Yeah, generally what we see is that hash rate follows price, not the other way around. So it's whatever the community deems to be the legitimate chain, then that's where all the computing power is gonna to go towards. Miners are effectively service providers. They follow whatever the rules set by the community are, whatever like crypto economic rules and incentives are, and the miners follow those rules. And if they go against those rules, well, they don't control the network, the community does. And if they need to, they can change those rules if they absolutely need to. That's uh, right. So let's maybe look at uh, proof of stake or you know, what, what Ethereum is moving towards. Right, so when you, when you look at the Ethereum network in its current state, it's very, it's very similar to uh, Bitcoin because it's still proof of work. But in the future with Ethereum 2.0, it's gonna be moving to a different consensus algorithm so instead of proof of work with like mining equipment, it's proof of stake with capital. So uh, it, the, the, the Ethereum blockchain, it's very similar with different parameters than Bitcoin. So it's block produced every approximately 13 seconds with a two Ethereum subsidy, plus the fees from users, just like Bitcoin, except in Ethereum last month, we actually saw 50% of the miner income actually come from fees instead of the subsidy, which is Ethereum's already doing the scaling approach that Bitcoin wants to do in the long term. Uh, just because a lot of people want to use the applications. So effectively, what Ethereum tries to do different than Bitcoin is that it's generating crypto economic security, not just around its native token, but it's generating crypto economic security around applications and smart contracts in general. And so with Ethereum in its current state is very similar to Bitcoin in terms of crypto economic security. But there's kind of, there's two, two dynamics of how the crypto economic security of Ethereum is kind of gonna evolve over time. And so this first one and probably the most well-known is proof of stake. So today we have ASICs and we have miners mining Ethereum, but when the merge happens, uh, the network's gonna be secured by validators. And these validators, instead of having hardware are gonna be locking up 32 ETH tokens per proof of stake node. And then they gain the, the right to propose and validate blocks in this network. And so when you stake 32 ETH, you basically, be, you're, you, you have the ability to enter the chain and start validating blocks. And if you wanna leave the chain, you kind of enter a queue. So you can't just enter the network and leave the network instantly, but you have to enter this queue process to ensure that the network continues its two thirds uh, consensus. Yeah, and with that queue, it's not like the, the, the nodes aren't competing to solve blocks like, like they do in proof of work. They're actually being rotated and through like a random function, correct me if I'm wrong, 
to 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 when they get elected and they 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 produce the block there's no competition but everyone else then checks their work afterwards right so in, the, in this proof of stake you have a proposer and they propose a block and then you have a bunch of attestations different validators who attest to the validity and they're basically staking on that block and so that's kind of how proof of stake works because there is no proof of work lottery to choose people it's a pseudo random function that chooses some proposer and then they propose the block and it's validated by everyone else. Right, and that's where the, the huge reduction in energy comes into play. Yeah, so instead of expending energy, which is like a basically a node selection process, you're expending the opportunity cost of capital effectively. And that's how the network is secured. Instead of thermodynamics and energy, it's the opportunity cost of using your capital somewhere else or owning some other asset. So where a lot of this actual like crypto economic security of staking comes from specifically in ETH2 is that validators can have their stake slashed, taken away effectively if they're acting malicious. And this, the primary form of that is if you're trying to basically fork the chain, which means you sign off on two different blocks at the same height, which effectively means you're, um, you're being inconsistent with how you're validating the chain. You're basically saying there's two versions of reality which means you're trying to attack the network. And so you can effectively, uh, you would get slashed for that. And you could even get uh, some capital taken away. If you miss an attestation, you were supposed to sign off on a block and you didn't. But the primary way of being malicious is trying to fork the chain or uh, trying to do uh, create a block with invalid transactions or things that can be proven cryptographically. You can prove that some validator signed two blocks at the same height because you just check the signatures. You can check if there's invalid transactions. Those are just signatures. And so effectively, when uh, when you have, the, the way the slashing works is that the more nodes who are malicious at the same time, the greater the, the slash stake becomes. So if there's just one node who is malicious, it could have been on accident. And it, that's happened before where they tried to have some kind of backup and it didn't work correctly. And they accidentally signed two blocks at the same height. So when you say more nodes being malicious, are you talking about the attestations from those other nodes, basically approving of this invalid uh, transaction that the block producer submitted? I, I believe it would be any kind of malicious activity. So if there's if there's like a lot of nodes all trying to double sign blocks, or if a lot of nodes uh, don't uh, properly attest to some block, effectively, if there's a lot of nodes engaging in some type of malicious activity, the amount that gets slashed increases. So you're talking about like this block producer is chosen, it has an invalid block, and then the next producer also has an invalid. So it's like they collude over a multi-block period, then the, the stake slashing goes up a lot more. It would be like if there's a producer and there's multiple attestations on different blocks that the producer created. So if a producer creates multiple blocks and then the attestations that people who ask to state, they sign multiple of those versions on the same block height, then the more people who try to do that, trying to like fork whatever the proposal created, then that effectively, the more people who are malicious, the greater their, their stake gets slashed. So you, so that could take on both a multi-block and a multi, multiple nodes attesting to each one of those blocks. So it's like, like a long, a multi-block attack and a multi-node attack per block. Right. Yeah. There's, there's different ways that you could, uh, you could try and attack the network and kind of the, the whole design around this is that you want to incentivize decentralization. If everybody is running their node 
on like AWS and AWS goes down and they miss their attestations, then a lot of people are going to be slashed and you're going to be slashed greater rather than if you were just running your own node on your own hardware and your own hardware went down, your node was probably the only one that went down, meaning you're not going to get slashed very much, which is kind of what incentivizes decentralization. And while staking pools are convenient, if that staking pool goes down or it accidentally signs two blocks, then you're going to lose more than if you made the same mistake on your own node, because more often than not, it's only going to be you making that mistake instead of a lot of entities. So kind of the whole purpose is that you want to make a coordinated attack very expensive. A one, a, 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 like a, a single node being malicious doesn't mean very much. You're not going to corrupt the network with that. But if you're nearing 50% or two thirds, then it's very likely that you were trying to attack the network. So you should have like your entire stake slashed. I just want to say that's a, a really ingenious, uh, it's amazing some of these designs that uh, people come up with in this space, like all the game theory and all the stuff that goes into creating these types of designs is, is very uh, intellectually interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's people talk about like ETH tubing vaporware, but it's like, it's not like they weren't doing anything. Like they're, they're creating the most secure proof of stake system and a lot of game theory and a lot of, a lot of cryptography as well, like BLS signatures, signature aggregation. That's the only reason like ETH2 can actually work at scale is if you can aggregate signatures. You know, it's a lot of, a lot of work went into this network. And so ETH2, the proof of stake beacon chain is actually already live. It's been live since last December. But the merge of switching out proof of work to proof of stake, that's going to happen either later this year or early next year. And that'll be like the, the, the switch flipping from changing the consensus algorithm effectively. And so when you look at like a, a somebody trying to majorly attack the network and let's say they do get the majority of the stake and they do try uh, creating invalid blocks or trying to fork the chain maliciously, the community and the protocol can basically autonomously slash the, the majority stake of that attacker. So with, with proof of work, if you have the majority of the ASIC supply, you can basically what's called spawn camp attack the network. You can attack it and then you can attack it again and you can just keep attacking over and over and over again because you still have the hardware. But in proof of stake, if you try to attack, you have one chance and then your capital is gonna get slashed. So it's like if your ASIC mining farm burned down after each attack. So the opportunity cost of being malicious is far higher in proof of stake, which is why it's actually a lot more secure in that respect than proof of work. And so this, this like majority slashing is a very strong form of security, but not every form of like being malicious is too terrible. And what's interesting is if you collude on that, you could have, you know, multiple nodes for, you know, majority slashed. And so it would really burn a lot of capital. Exactly. It would make, it would make the ETH supply more scarce, meaning if you wanted to actually pull off the attack, it would become more expensive because the supply gets drained uh, effectively. So it's there's a strong incentive to not attack the network because you have one chance to get it right. And regardless if you do it right or wrong, you're going to lose all your capital anyways. So it's like a it's like the most strong deterrent you could have against a malicious majority attack. But not 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 all like malicious activity is the same. So instead of like direct slashing for like double signing, if you're inactive, it's actually what's called like an inactivity leak. Meaning if you're down, you're just going to be slashed like very, just a little bit continuously over time. So if you're down for like an hour and then you're up for an hour, you made back all the capital that you just lost during that hour. So if you're down for a day, the next day you've already made all your capital back that you lost from that inactivity leak. And so kind of the, the purpose is 
not just for incentivizing uptime, but let's say World War III type situation happens, half the network goes offline, then the, you would think that you couldn't agree because the majority of the stake isn't participating, but with the inactivity leak, those, the capital of the inactivity or the inactive people continuously decreases until the honest nodes that are still active have the majority again, effectively. So it's regardless of what happens, the active, honest minority in a situation will eventually become the majority because of the inactivity leak of all the offline nodes. So it's kind of one of these dynamics where it keeps the network, uh, keeps the network running effectively. And so when, when you're locking up ETH to stake in ETH2, you effectively have an opportunity cost because you can go do something, something else with your ETH. You can go deposit it in DeFi or you could own a different asset or you could do something else with it. So it's effectively staking capital. And when you look at proof of work, it's almost the same thing, except instead of staking capital, you're using capital by energy and ASICs, and then you're basically using those. Proof of, proof of stake basically ditches the energy in the hardware and just stakes the capital directly. And so it's actually a lot more direct form of security where with proof of work, you have an economies of scale where the larger your operation, the higher the profits you make. But with proof of stake, everyone earns the same yield regardless if you have 32 ETH or 32,000 ETH. You're going to get the same yield effectively. Well, maybe <laughs> if you have many nodes, you could earn, you could deploy more proof of stake nodes. Well, I mean, like from like a, a percentage yield perspective, like if the yield is like 5%, if you have one node or 100 nodes, your yield's still going to be 5%. But under proof of work, your yield could be 3% as a small node. It could be 10% as a large node because you have fixed costs, infrastructure, hardware. Those have like fixed capital costs. But like with proof of stake, it doesn't matter to the scale of your operation. Everyone's yield is, is effectively the same, basically. And so when we, when you, a lot of, like kind of I mentioned before, a lot of the engineers and developers don't necessarily like to talk about price, but when you come to proof of stake, the price and value of ETH is actually what secures the network directly. So the higher the price of ETH, the more secure the network because the higher the opportunity cost and the higher price it would cost for a malicious actor to buy up half the supply. So if you think through a process of somebody, some new attacker trying to attack the network and they want to acquire half the supply, they would have to continuously buy ETH off the market. And when they do that, they're introducing a large buy pressure, which rises the price of ETH in the process, meaning while theoretically it may only cost uh, 50 billion to buy half the supply, when you keep buying, you're raising the market cap of ETH. So it may end up costing $500 billion because you keep raising the price of it. So, and in the end, it's all gonna be burned anyways, because that's what the protocol does when you're malicious. So like it's incredibly expensive to attack the network and this opportunity cost is effectively the crypto economics of the Ethereum network. And because there is no proof of work, with proof of work, you have, with the issuance, you have to subsidize the energy usage, which can become a lot. Meaning in proof of work, miners are always selling because they need to cover their capital costs, their electricity costs. But under proof of stake, you don't have those costs. Meaning in order to get the same level of security, you could have much, much lower issuance, which effectively leads to less inflation, which means less selling pressure, which means a higher market valuation of ETH which directly relates to higher security effectively. So in, in this sense, proof of stake in on multiple levels is more secure than proof of work effectively, given all else equal with decentralization, which that's still kind of a work in progress with like exchanges being staking nodes and whatnot. And so uh, th this is kind of like the proof of stake dynamic, but 
another form of crypto economic security, which we're going to see in Ethereum uh, before the ETH2 proof of stake merge actually this summer is the Ethereum improvement proposal, proposal 1559 or EIP 1559. And effectively what this is and what it was designed for was to make gas prices more predictable because today it's a gas price auction, meaning everybody's competing, raising how much they're willing to pay to get into a block. But 1559 basically replaces that with a base fee. So it, you, you know how much your transaction is going to cost to get into the next block because the protocol is trying to target 50% block space usage. So if there's more than 50% of the block space being used, it raises the gas price. And if it's less than 50%, then it lowers the gas price to kind of target this 50%. And effectively, it makes it much more predictable making transactions. But in order to prevent different kind of attack vectors of nodes just uh, artificially not including any transactions or filling up the blocks themselves using their own transactions, you have to actually burn the transaction fees to kind of prevent this spam. And so this kind of leads into the dynamic of why most people care about 1559 is that it burns the transaction fees, the base fee, while only the tip goes to the miner effectively. Because if the blocks are full, it basically reverts to a gas price auction, but the vast majority of the time, it's gonna be entirely predictable how much you need to pay. And so this burning effectively makes ETH more scarce. And when you combine that with proof of stake, which lowers issuance, that effectively makes the supply deflationary. Meaning instead of Bitcoin where there's a hard cap on Ethereum, it would be a decreasing circulating supply over time while still maintaining a security budget, which is kind of where the meme ultrasound money <laughs> effectively came from because the, 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 the low issuance of proof of stake plus the transaction fee burning means over time, everyone's holdings of ETH will increase in percentage of the supply. And so that that's effectively leads to even greater security. So well, without the base fee, I'm guessing the assumption is that the tips are high enough always to, well, I guess you have the subsidy. So the subsidy pays the note and then anything extra is, is comes from the tips. Yeah, exactly. Like in, in Bitcoin, all the security is inevitably going to come from the transaction fees. So you can't burn it really. So the, the base fee, will that offset the subsidy a lot of times as well? Or is that, I'm curious to how like, the subsidy is bringing new ETH into circulation, but then they're getting burned on the other end. Exactly. It, it, it's kind of, it depends on how much demand there is for block space. People were doing projections a little while ago when gas prices were like 200 guay, that uh, if there was EIP 1559 plus proof of stake like last month, there would be four times as much ETH being burned as being issued. Basically, the supply would be decreasing over time. I would be curious to see though how that, works in ETH 2.0 though when it's you know when it's less there might not be as much competition per space i'm i'm not a 100 on all that modeling but it was how that would be effective with ETH 2.0 with ETH or with like a proof of stake proof of stake doesn't actually increase the transaction throughput at all it only replaces like the consensus mechanism so all else equal it would have the the same burning effect essentially what ETH2 will really provide is like these data shards where the shards can't do transactions, but they can hold data. And at the same time, layer two rollups need data. They need to store their data on chain because that's kind of what makes them scalable. They store data on chain, but they do the computation off chain. And so these rollups are going to continuously consume 
the main Ethereum block space, paying ETH2 network for those block space, and they'll be burning ETH to do that. Do you think though they'll be doing less transactions on the main chain though? Like if they're doing more roll-up type transactions, you're 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 only having batch transactions. So would that what I know that, that that's probably more costs more block space to do though, because it's more it's more computationally intensive to verify those roll-ups? It would be yeah, you know, there's there's kind of a narrative where like, oh, if if you have roll-ups, then the demand's gonna decrease for layer one. But I think that demand for layer one block space is actually gonna increase kind of induced demand. Once you have these rollups and you have a lot of space, you can support a lot more users. And once you have hundreds of these different rollups, the per user costs may only be a couple of dollars, dollars per transaction, but the main layer of transactions may be thousands of dollars per transaction. But because it's distributed across so many users, the users aren't paying very much individually. So I think so, demand is so, going to increase. So yeah, so, so basically the, the amount of transactions, the volume of transactions is going to increase in layer two. And so then, but, but then the, the roll-up verification on L1, you, you'll have more continuous verifications and the, and the per transaction cost for each verification is higher. Yeah, the, 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 the individual transaction. Right, like eventually the only people making transactions on the layer one will be uh, posting roll-up blocks, verifying those blocks with like fraud proofs and whatnot, and then like whale transactions of like Coinbase moving their funds somewhere. And like, like, like gov probably like governance stuff as well. I think even governance would happen on layer two, like even like token contract deployments, like deploying a contract on layer one is inevitably going to become insanely expensive, but everything's going to end up happening on layer two, basically. But, but, but like, what about like disputes and, and things like that? It's kind of like governance to some degree, like you have dispute resolution things. If you have dispute resolution of the rollup itself, then that would be done on L1. But if you have like a an application specific dispute of like an application, that could be done on like the the rollup itself as well. And so, it, yeah, this this kind of EIP plus proof of stake plus sharding plus rollups is like the long term approach to crypto economic security of increasing the demand for block space through like DeFi and then uh, lowering issuance through proof of stake and then lowering issuance effectively even further with transaction fee burning effectively means that Ethereum will have a predictable security budget of this new issuance, but it'll be net deflationary because of this transaction fee burning. So it's ultimately when you compare it against Bitcoin where you have, it's effectively hard capped, except that it's inflationary until 2140. And then you have Ethereum where its monetary policy is more malleable compared to Bitcoin. But when you're just looking at how it's achieving security, it's more predictable, plus the issuance is lower, plus it has a lot more utility through smart contracts. So I think there's a place for both Bitcoin and Ethereum, but when you're looking at what's actually gonna end up becoming the settlement layer that accrues the most value, we already see Ethereum settling more value like today. And I feel like that's only gonna continue. I have, I mean, I, I like Bitcoin and Ethereum. I have more confidence in the security, the long-term security budget of Ethereum through these things that they're implementing. I, I really worried so I really want to know how Bitcoin is going to solve this over the long term when the mining, when the block reward is, you know, reduced to hardly anything. Yeah, with, with Bitcoin, the main thing is that the, the, the supply issuance is predictable. You, you know how much Bitcoin is going to exist in a year. But the flip of that coin is that with Ethereum, you know what the network security budget is going to be. You know how much security you're going to get because it's it's based on subsidies. It's not based on transaction fees, which are 
are volatile and unpredictable. So it's kind of each has their own trade-off of what you want to prefer. If you just want sound money, then you probably want to take the Bitcoin route and just hope that some solution happens to, to not need a um, inflationary supply in the long term. And if you want like more security guarantees of holding your assets using applications, then Ethereum is kind of that route. And realistically, when you have things like Ren and uh, the, these other like cross-chain solutions like DeBridge, you can bring your Bitcoin onto Ethereum and effectively get essentially the best of both worlds, a, a hard capped asset on a secure blockchain network with lots of applications. But, but the problem is that the, the Bitcoin network doesn't accrue the transaction fees that happen with that Bitcoin. And so there, there's a problem with the security budget when you start moving block Bitcoin onto these other blockchains and using it natively on that blockchain exclusively. Yeah, I think ultimately, <laughs> I don't know, I don't think Bitcoiners would ever like this, but if Bitcoin could just be a token on Ethereum, like if, if it doesn't need its own security policy or like its own budget, it can just be a hard cap token on Ethereum and it can retain that sound money, hard capped, same distributed supply, but not need to worry about its own security budget because Ethereum will do that on its behalf. So that could be an avenue, but I really don't see that happening with the Bitcoin max secure. I don't see it happening. I don't see that happening either, but the security budget is as much as I, I'm, I'm all for sound money. You know, that's the reason I originally got interested in Bitcoin. But if you don't have a security budget, you know, it's not going to be sound no matter how fixed your supply is. Yeah, people, they some try to argue that it's not a problem because they'll pull on the data in the past of Bitcoin. But Bitcoin's only existed for 10 years. There's really not that much data to go off of. And 90% of the security of the network comes from the subsidy. So it really remains to see if transaction fees will be enough. And as Ethereum siphons more fees from Bitcoin, then I think it's going to be really questionable of like, what's going to be the most secure blockchain? Do you want security or do you want this quote unquote immaculate distribution fair mining effectively? So I think, I think you get the best of both worlds, but it kind of comes down to what narrative you prefer. I will say at least they have these things like, you know, you, you can fork the network, you could, you know, change, so you, you, know, you can change the hashing algorithm. So if the, the community does have ways to, uh, you know, thwart bad, you know, malicious attacks. So there, it's not just, uh, there are ways to do it. And, and I think when push comes to shove, you know, they, they will implement these things if they have to, because they, they all have major financial incentives to see Bitcoin succeed. So it's, there are ways, but, you know, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, it'll be interesting if, if the hard cap is broken. I would love to see what the narrative becomes then if it's no longer sound money and hard cap supply. And if you have a if you have a low, very low inflation rate that you know, I think that the problem with with fiat money is that, you know, it's it's in it's in the control of a single entity. They can they can, you know, do it without any like consensus from anyone, essentially. And they can just like set it in an opaque manner however they want and it can go up you know it, it, there's no like it's not like a fixed inflation rate either they can just do it however they want and so i see some more protocols doing like a very low fixed inflation to solve these security budget issues you would have to keep it high enough to like cover the electricity costs but that's kind of why like with proof of stake you don't have to worry about that and you can keep issuance very very low but get the security budget you need effectively so on this, on this last one, some people call this a form of crypto economic security or part of the security budget. I think that's pushing it, but there's also a dynamic of 
minor extractable value or what's kind of called now maximally extractable value, which effectively is the ability for miners to include, exclude, or reorder transactions within a block. And effectively, that allows them to front run transactions or censor transactions or basically uh, extract value from user transactions. So if you're making a trade on Uniswap, you can get totally wrecked by slippage if you're not careful because somebody front runs your transaction. Uh, yeah, for the most part, it's like slippage. You, you, can, you can alter the order of transactions to extract some of the value, like sandwiching your own transactions in there. And then you can extract some of that slippage from users to your own benefit. So I, I don't see like this is, um, it's, it's, uh, it's basically malicious in my opinion. Um, it, it does subsidize the cost for miners because they can you know, extract some value, but it comes at the direct expense of users. And I don't see any like major players you know, wanting to run the risk of such slippage that's completely un, you know, to the most part, completely unknown. And, and so I don't consider this as a valid form of crypto economic security as more of a malicious form of crypto economic security. Yeah, MEV is kind of a large bucket. It encapsulates any kind of extracting. So there's, there's, there's beneficial MEV in the sense of like arbitrage between DEXs or uh, liquidations, which you want to happen, ideally without gas price auctions. But the, the MEV that most people talk about is this front running of transactions and this censorship of user transactions, which can basically siphon a lot of value from users. And sure, maybe it'll make your, your yield a little bit better, but it's like you're, you're benefiting off of the exploitation of users. I mean, that, that's not really an f- economically fair system, and that's ultimately not really what we want. So there's, um, there's more discussion about MEV lately and about how is it is it fraud? Is it stealing from people? Or is it something we, we should democratize and uh, kind of create auctions for? So there's kind of two, two approaches to it currently. Basically, it would turn all miners into the arbitrageurs. Like you couldn't run an arbitrage bot yourself as the miners could always just like front run you essentially. And there's some form of MEVs, MEV that you can only do as a miner because like some low value arbitrage, it's not worth the transaction fee to do it. But when you're a miner, you, you don't have to pay any transaction fee, at least before EIP-1559. So you can extract a lot more value. And so I think that like with, with flash bots and MEV auctions, it helps prevent like gas price auction wars, which is, 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 is good, but it doesn't solve MEV at all. In fact, it makes it more, happens way, way more often. So ultimately, it kind, of, kind of just a plug for Chainlink, since there hasn't been too much Chainlink in this episode, there's chain like fair sequencing services, which kind of effectively aims to mitigate this at the application level and at layer two can solve it at the entire network level as well. So realistically in the long term, MEV shouldn't be a part of the security budget of a network because it can and will be mitigated, at least the malicious forms of MEV. So in, in the long term, the security of a network should come from the subsidy. It should come from the transaction fees and it should come from the hardware, effectively all of the explicit and implicit incentives of this network. And I think MEV is none of those. It's just exploitation of users that happens to be profitable because fraud is profitable, but it's not necessarily ethically okay. Right, it's fairly unpredictable as well because you have to actually be the one to win the block. And we don't know whether they're going to do that or not. So if arbitrage was dependent on that, then you know, it's, a little, it's not as predictable as having uh, you know, a specific entity like that's that's serving that you're paying to 
produce a certain service. So uh, I also want to touch on, we, we should do a whole episode on MEV, so I don't want to get into the weeds too much, but I know some people say that MEV is unsolvable and it very well might be unsolvable at the base layer, so at the blockchain, but as you said, it's very solvable at the application and layer two layer. And so you can effectively mitigate it per application or even as a whole rollup in general, a whole rollup chain. So that's where I think the distinction is that people, we, we don't see this brought up as much in discussions. I say they're not solvable or it is solvable. Well, it's probably not solvable in one layer. Well, I don't know, maybe not, but I, I haven't seen any proposals to solve it at the base layer, but at the application and rollup layer, it very much seems like it could be. And that's where Chainlink FSS comes in. Yeah, I think that it's kind of, it's always, it comes back to like a conflict of definition of where people say like, but you want arbitrage, you want liquidations. And it's like, yes, we do, but that's not the MEV we're talking about. We're talking about front running and that MEV is entirely preventable and is, you know, we don't need to recreate the traditional financial system with these entities front running you. So it, we, we see MEV or theoretically it's possible on things like Bitcoin, but realistically, we really only see them on Ethereum. And it, it, Arbitrage, or you know, I know some some protocols want to use arbitrage to um, to manage protocols, but it's not like an absolute essential. You can have different forms of keepers, like you have chainlink keepers that can actually perform these operations, and you and you service them to perform these specific operations. So there are other ways that you could uh, do this as well. Yeah, I think it's essentially the point is that MEV should not be considered part of the security budget because inevitably it's going to be mostly prevented regardless of what layer that actually ends up being uh, mitigated upon. So I think we've covered, we've covered a lot of different podcasts or a lot of different topics in this podcast from what is crypto economic security to how it's applied in Bitcoin proof of work, how it's applied to Ethereum proof of stake, and then kind of also a little bit on just MVV in general, because it's an intriguing concept. So I think it's been a good episode. So this, then the next upcoming episode, we'll, we'll be talking about how Chainlink employs crypto economic security effectively taking these concepts of how they work in blockchains and applying them kind of directly and indirectly to how they work in the chain link network because there's there's different nuances to how they work so thank you for listening and i hope you will tune into the next one